You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Are you going to keep podcasting when, on Baby Watch or are you going to take some time off? Once I have the kid, I'm going on maternity leave. On baby duty, yes. Yeah, no way. Uh-uh. You don't care about the podcast that much? I care about the podcast, but I care about my child and my sanity more. <laughs> I hear that. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the URLC podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the URLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester and with me on the podcast today is my co-host Lindsay Nicolay. Hello from our Man Down podcast. Yes, we're a man down. Uh, Brent is struggling with uh, family sickness, and so he is not going to be joining us today, though you will get to hear a special guest, uh, Dr. Patrick Schreiner from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and we're really excited about that conversation. So in any case, uh, we're excited about today's show and a lot of good things to talk about. Lindsay, tell us what the URLC has been talking about this week. So, okay, I'm trying to figure out a way to start except for saying so or okay, because I do that every week. It's like you, yes, that's right. Exactly right. You can insult um, yourself without insulting me. You don't have to insult really me so you feel I better I really can't. I have yourself. to insult other people while I insult myself. It's a sin problem I have. <laughs> um, okay. This week at the ERLC, we have been highlighting adoption. And so one of those pieces that I wanted to point out is actually a roundup of child welfare policies that the ERLC is working on. And this was written by our D.C. colleague, Chelsea Patterson Sobolik. And just a quick rundown of some of those policies, just so you can be aware Uh, We've been working on the Adoptee Citizenship Act. This act um, closes the loophole for children who were left out of a previous act, the Child Citizenship Act of 2000, and it provides them immediate citizenship. These children have been adopted, have been living in the United States for years and years and years, and yet they're left out of the previous bill. So this is very important to us and, and We want to help remove any obstacles to adoption. Um, Also, we've been working on uh, the Supreme Court case that was recently heard, Fulton versus Philadelphia, which is a very important religious liberty issue dealing with foster care. And we've got some, um, some information on our site about that. In addition, we've been working on things like the Child Welfare Provider Inclusion Act and also ensuring that intercountry adoption remains a viable option. So that's a mouthful right now, but you can go to our website, check those things out. And we just, more than anything, want you to know that this is a priority for us. Adoption is a priority. Child welfare is a priority for us. And so the ERLC is continually working hard behind the scenes to ensure that um, these children are vulnerable children are taken care of. I really like the way that you said that, Lindsay. It is so much of that work that happens in our DC office is behind the scenes work. It's the kind of thing that the average Southern Baptist, the average person uh, would never know uh, most of the time what what kind of work is being done by our colleagues in the D.C. office. But the truth is, especially for things uh, like these child welfare policies are a really great example of ways that the ERLC is doing advocacy to help advance a culture of life. Uh, We talked about last week on the podcast the uh, Fulton case where the Supreme Court heard oral arguments, and that is such an important thing that adoption providers that are faith-based providers be able to continue to do ministry and provide adoptions without violating or in accordance 
accordance with their religious convictions. And so that's obviously a huge Supreme Court case. It's something that we are going to be uh, watching very closely. We're expecting, hoping uh, for a very favorable decision in that. But this was a helpful roundup from Chelsea. And so if you ever are asking the question, what does it look like to do uh, public policy or what kinds of things uh, is the ERLC advocating for? This is a really good place to start. And another issue that we are passionate about is the issue of sexual abuse and making sure that we are fighting against it, uh, making our churches safe for survivors and safe from abuse. So we have an article up written by our staff that highlights the priorities for the sexual abuse advisory group and the ways that the ERLC continues to work with that group to fight against sexual abuse. So again, just a a quick rundown of some of this. We're helping prepare churches through our Caring Well Challenge. We're developing new resources for churches and ministries and digital resources during COVID because this is an especially vulnerable time for those who face sexual abuse a lot of times being stuck in their homes with the perpetrator, working on updating the hiring guide. And uh, another important note that we'll end on here, even though there are a ton more resources that are being worked on by the Sexual Abuse Advisory Group, is the fact that we're going to highlight this issue uh, in our upcoming Light Magazine. So that will be, that's a biannual magazine, comes out usually in June and then in December. And so this December's issue, which will be print and digital, uh, will highlight the issue of sexual abuse. We have a lot of great, helpful resources in there. So I would encourage you to check it out. I'm really glad that this is something that we are still continuing to highlight. One of the big things when the Southern Baptist Convention uh, started to seriously address the issue of sexual abuse, one of the big questions that people asked was, are you only addressing this because of this is the issue in the spotlight? Because of the Houston Chronicle series uh, bringing attention to this, is this something that right now you're just kind of doing damage control and then it's going to fade into the background? The truth is that I think that the SBC uh, is resolved to being the kind of denomination that takes the issue of sexual abuse within the church incredibly seriously and is committed to providing training and creating policies and doing all kinds of, of follow-through to, to ensure that our churches are safe places uh, for children, for the vulnerable, and that they are not places where abusers can come to prey upon those people. And so uh, this is an incredibly important initiative. I'm glad to see the ERLC continuing to be a part of the effort to spearhead this because this is not something that next year or two years from now or 10 years from now that we can we can take our eyes off of. It has to be a part of the ongoing culture of the SBC. Our churches are safe places. We take abuse very seriously, and we have a zero tolerance policy. All of that stuff is incredibly important, and I'm glad to see us continue to focus on it. And this is something that those on our staff who are really heavily involved with it and those who were formerly on our staff that have spearheaded it should be really proud of. I just think it, the Lord is going to use it to have a lasting impact Uh kind of like you said, Josh, for future generations. And then last but not least, we wanted to remind our readers that we have not forgotten, forgotten, <laughs> that we have not forgotten that we, we are we in ain't the, forgetting. We ain't forgetting. That we have not forgotten that we are in the middle of a pandemic that has not ended and it's actually ramping back up. And it can be an incredibly discouraging time for 
individuals, for churches, for pastors. So Jared Cornett, a pastor in Texas, actually wrote an article, just a brief reflection on three ways that his congregation has encouraged him during the pandemic. And in this piece, he just talks about how he has set out in the midst of the coronavirus to encourage his congregation time and time again. But what inevitably ends up happening is that he's the one that walks away encouraged, whether it's the way that uh, his church has stepped up to serve, the way that they have given generously. In fact, during coronavirus, they've had the highest giving that their church has had in a long time. So they were able to upgrade their digital resources and actually give money to a partner overseas in East Asia. So he has just seen the church step up. And that's what we want to remind ourselves of. That's what we want to remind you of, that in the midst of a time when our lives have really shut down, they've halted, it's been incredibly frustrating. And there have been many, many, many trials that God is still at work and He's still building His kingdom and the church hasn't stopped. But the Lord is using His church to rise up in the midst of many tragic situations to bring the light of the gospel of Christ to the situation. Well, Lindsay, I'll first say that when you said rise up, all I could think about was that line from Hamilton. So that was that was really something. But um, oh, really? I yeah. thought of the Audra Day song. Oh, there you go. I think and, that's uh, right. But you're exactly right. Like we've talked over and over again uh, on the podcast about the fact that the pandemic has really been a mixed bag. Like there have been obviously so many negative things that come along with it. But then there are just these small mercies. These are just, just real glimpses of God's kindness in so many different ways. And so this article is one where you just get to see in the life of a local church some of these really unexpected positive things. Uh, we've experienced that at our own church in certain ways of being able to uh, go deeper in in specific relationships. We've seen, uh, you know, I've heard reports from pastors and friends who are in the ministry uh, across the country who have had these, you know, record giving. They've had incredible discipleship stories coming out of this, but they've also had to deal with some unexpected difficulties. And so it's something for us to remember. I, I liked what you said about the fact that, you know, the the mission of the kingdom of God continues to go on, that the church continues uh, to march forward, even even in the midst of a pandemic, even in a time when church and ministry looks differently, God is continuing to work, the gospel is co- continuing to advance. And so uh, this is something for us as Christians to to be grateful for, that no matter what happens, that we know that that God is still accomplishing His purposes and, and advancing His kingdom. And Peter tells us in the New Testament not to be surprised when fiery trials come upon us. You know, I think that's more in the context of persecution, but it it applies to many things about living in a fallen world. So we don't need to be surprised when these hardships come. We also don't need to be faithlessly surprised that the Lord shows Himself and shows up in the midst of that and um, glorifies Himself and works for the good of His people. So that's just a quick rundown of the different things that we've had on our site. I would encourage you as listeners to go and check that out yourself. But Josh, that's your look at ERLC.com. Hey, thanks for that rundown of ERLC content, Lindsay. Now we're going to move into our culture section. And since Brent's not here, I'll do my best to hit the highlights of what's going on this week and we'll just get through it. So the the first thing going on is still a contested election. So we are waiting for this kind of time between the times we are at the end of the, you know, presidential election, but still uh, the 
Biden campaign is moving forward, putting all of the necessary things in place to create a transition team. Uh, yesterday, it was announced that we're, we're recording this on Thursday. Yesterday, it was announced that Joe Biden had tapped a longtime aide, Rob Klain, to serve as his chief of staff. He has been serving with Joe Biden since, uh, get this, I was reading. Joe Biden became a senator when he was, I think, 30 years old. And Ron Klain, who was a recent graduate from Harvard Law School, came to work for Joe Biden way back then. They have done a number of, they've worked together a number of times uh, since, you know, in that long career that Joe Biden has had in Washington. And so he has turned to his trusted aide and friend, Ron Klain, to serve as his chief of staff. At the same time, I mentioned the Trump campaign is still contesting the results in a number of states, uh, insisting on recounts. Uh, at this point, the all, the only uh, state that I'm aware of that has not been called yet is the state of Georgia, where they were separated by around 14,000 votes the last time that I checked. And uh, yesterday, the state of Georgia announced that it is going to do a hand recount of all of the ballots cast in the presidential election uh, to ensure their accuracy and to make sure that, you know, with a with a race this close, they just want to ensure uh, that Georgia's electoral votes are properly awarded. And it's clear through the different news outlets and such that Joe Biden is presumed to be the president-elect as far as the way that the votes have come in that there's really no way that Trump could get ahead. Is that true? That's right. Basically, in terms of like any kind of standard recount, there's no way, and we talked about this a lot on the podcast last week, there's there's no way uh, in terms of anything that is has happened historically that a simple recount would reverse the results of the election. The main reason being that uh, the, the election was not decided by a single state. But if President Trump were to have a path to victory, he would basically have to see uh, a number of states reversed. Uh, the uh, call was officially made in Arizona, uh, which is a state that President Trump would need. Uh, Pennsylvania uh, was called for Joe Biden, which was another state that President Trump would need, and he would need to ultimately come out ahead in Georgia, which, you know, they are, like we mentioned, they are going to do a hand recount. But as far as we see, uh, Joe Biden is up by at least, uh, he by more than 10,000 votes. And we have never seen a recount reverse results by more than something in the low thousand. So it's just, it's incredibly unlikely, which is why all of the major news outlets have, have gone ahead and called the race uh, for Joe Biden and have been referring to him as president-elect because barring some kind of, you know, unforeseen uh, circumstances that are, that are truly extraordinary, uh, that this race is decided. Yeah, listening to the Dispatch podcast, I think maybe we mentioned that last week has been helpful for me in understanding some of these things. Because uh, it contains people who have worked during election cycles and with polling and things like that. But just really in all of this, what this has made clear to me is for many of us, politics is wrapped up in our identity as believers. And that shouldn't be so, though it is important. And we we really just have to watch ourselves because people, believers, have just been biting and devouring one another and not letting our reasonableness be shown to all. And so I do pray that the Lord would um, convict us and make us reasonable people who are able to move forward with what the whatever the result is, trusting that God is going to work. Lindsay, I think that's so good. And it's so true because I've had a number of conversations with uh, pastors this week about how ahead of the election, there was all of this fervor and all of this conversation happening. And they, they were in, oftentimes discouraged by things they would see church members, not only post on social media, which is what we talk about a lot, but but even some of the, the face-to-face conversations that they were seeing uh, take place 
when people were gathered uh, for church on Sundays or at other kinds of church gatherings. I think what your your caution there about not letting politics become something that consumes our identity is incredibly important because we're Christians. Our identities are rooted in Jesus. Jesus is our King, which means that the thing that I've found myself saying over and over again is once you really grasp the reality of Jesus as King and, and what it means that that our lives are bound up with His kingship and a future kingdom and a reign that's going to last forever— then you can come back to American politics and put it in its right place. You can say that, yes, it's important, but it's not ultimate, that our future uh, isn't riding on the outcome of this or any other election. It's not riding on having or not having a certain president because, because Jesus is king. He is sovereign over all things, and that he is the one who is uh, directing the, the course of human history. Yeah, and we may have real disappointments and disagreements, but that doesn't mean that we have to um, treat people who are made in God's image as our enemies. In fact, the Bible warns us against that in Ephesians, <laughs> tells us that that is not where our battle lies, but in the the heavenly realms, in the spiritual realm. And so um, these things are real. These disappointments are real for many. But again, we can we can rest in Christ and His rule and reign. And like you said, knowing where American politics falls in the place of ultimate things. And that's not to say that politics aren't important or that the outcomes don't matter or that elections don't have consequences. All of those things are true. The The point is, and what, what I would want other Christians to embrace, is that you can... You can be passionate about politics. You can take it incredibly seriously. You can understand the gravity and how much it matters and still not let it become an idol, not let it become this kind of overriding, controlling force in your life that that strikes at the level of identity or that separates you from other people and, and especially other believers. Some more things on the election front. So we we talked last week how it takes a long time to count all of these ballots in and in a, many races, things are still incredibly close. So it is decided at this point. We, we're confident that, that Democrats are going to retain control of the House of Representatives. If you, uh, according to the New York Times right now, which which relies on AP, which is historically one of the most accurate race calling services, uh, right now the House stands at 218 uh, Democrats, 202 Republicans with a number of races still to be decided. It is very likely that the remaining seats are going to break heavily for the Republicans to retain control of the House of Representatives. You have to reach that 218 threshold, which is exactly where Democrats are sitting right now. And I actually posted yesterday, because I am I am a nerd, like I really like politics. Uh, I posted yesterday a picture of my own like handwritten notes where I'm tracking all of the uncalled house races. And so if you want to see if I'm right or not in a few weeks, my my very best guess is that uh, Democrats are going to end up with about 223 seats, which would mean that Republicans are going to end up with 212 seats in the House. And uh, we'll see how close that is. But but it is going to be, it's very evident, it's going to be a razor thin margin for Democrats going forward, which, which is incredibly significant because it has a huge, uh, it will have a huge impact on the kinds of legislation that they're able to put forward because it's very likely that anything, uh, the speaker, if it is Nancy Pelosi or whoever is elected speaker, it is incredibly likely that they will have to rely on some Republican votes in order to pass many pieces of legislation, which, which is going to affect the kind of legislation they're able to put forward. Moving on to the Senate, we finally this week have received uh, calls from two of the remaining or last uh, uncalled Senate races, the one in Alaska and in North Carolina. And so that brings the current total 
uh, for control of the Senate to 50 for the Republicans, 48 for the Democrats. And of course, that means that ultimately control of the Senate, uh, at least for the next two years, is going to hang on the state of Georgia. In Georgia, they have announced that they're going to do uh, a runoff on January 5th for both of their U.S. Senate seats. So in those two Senate races, uh, it's going to be Leffler versus Warnock and Purdue versus Ossoff. And there is going to be so much, as we talked about last week, there's going to be so much attention paid to Georgia between now and that runoff on January 5th. And so if you live in the state of Georgia, you have, I think, until December 7th, but until early December to make sure you're registered so you can vote in in that race. But all eyes and a lot of money and national attention is going to be paid uh, to Georgia just because we're waiting to see who is going to control the future, uh, or at least for the next two years, of the United States Senate. And then finally, to move away from the the serious grind of politics, here's one random thing for you uh, that that Megan found for us to share. Here it is. So apparently there is a town in the state of Kentucky called Rabbit Hash, and Rabbit Hash has a tradition of electing canines to the office of mayor. And so this year, uh, the, the new mayor's name is Wilbur, and he is a French bulldog. Lindsay, what do you think about that? Well... Wilbur, of course, reminds me of a pig, so I feel like he should have a little bit of a different name. But more importantly, what is a rabbit hash? (laughs) What is a rabbit hash? Other than a place, I have no idea. Is it a type of meal or something? (laughs) That's what it sounds like. (laughs) This sounds like a good opportunity for either a real-time fact check or for a listener to uh, write in and tell us what rabbit hash refers to. So yeah, you can just uh, send us an email and let us know what's going on with that. So as Brent would say, huge news on the coronavirus front. Uh, On Monday, the drug maker Pfizer announced that an early analysis of its coronavirus vaccine trial suggested that the vaccine was robustly effective in preventing COVID-19. If that was a mouthful, Pfizer announced on Monday that their new coronavirus vaccine is 90% effective. And that is, that's what we've all been waiting for. And so all of the signs here are really, really positive. And the company said that the analysis found that the vaccine was more than 90% effective in preventing the disease among trial volunteers, no evidence of prior coronavirus infection. And if those results hold up, that means that the level of protection would put it on par with highly effective childhood vaccines for diseases such as measles. Importantly, and the thing that all of us want to know, uh, according to the New York Times, no serious safety concerns have been observed. That's a welcome relief. Uh, Pfizer is one of many companies uh, participating in the U.S. government's Operation Warp Speed and one of many companies around the world racing to try to to get a vaccine. Encouraging to us, Dr. Fauci said that all of this data is really, really promising and that if, if things stay on this pace, that they should be distributing vaccine to those uh, who are at highest risk or, or most in need uh, by December, which is something that is just is just absolutely huge because it means that early into next year, they will be distributing this vaccine more broadly. And waiting for the end of the coronavirus pandemic is something that basically unites all of us. Uh, there, I don't know anyone who's not anxious to be able to move on with their lives. The Coronavirus news, though, or this news from Pfizer is good because this week ABC News reported that every state in the U.S. is reporting an increasing number of COVID-19 cases. And Monday, the United States passed 10 million cases since the coronavirus pandemic came in the early spring. I am so excited about this vaccine, and I do pray that it 
works out. It's It makes me thankful for all the researchers, too, who are tirelessly working on these things that the Lord would give them favor that there could be a vaccine for this, you know, because there's things that we don't have vaccines for yet, and also that it couldn't come at a better time. My husband, who works uh, in the music industry, one of the larger labels or music groups, he always keeps it up with when they're going back to work. And they said they're not going back to work until July of next year at the earliest, which is bonkers. And the spikes in the coronavirus cases have really been affecting us personally because we know several staff members who have had close family members or their own family members being affected by coronavirus, even though they are generally cautious. So this is good news, and we need to pray that the Lord would just give it favor. It is good news. And it, you know, right now we're in the middle of a very intense spike. We're seeing uh, about 140,000 new cases of coronavirus every day. One of my friends who has already had it said to me this week, uh, he said, everyone you know is about to get coronavirus. And that's terrifying. And you know, I would just encourage our listeners, like, be careful in all that you can, do everything you can to mitigate risk. My wife had to be tested earlier this week after an exposure, and fortunately, she tested negative, and everyone in our house is so far fine. But uh, with the increasing number of cases, there are there's just a lot of risk out there, especially, you know how they always say everything's bigger in Texas? Texas this week became the first state to exceed 1 million coronavirus cases. It matters because it is the first state to pass this milestone. It has the 10th most cases in the world, which is absolutely insane. It has surpassed the number of cases in the nation of Italy. And so uh, and so far, over 19,000 people have died from the virus just in Texas. And so it's not a joke. It is affecting real people's lives, and it's also affecting college football. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw this, but the uh, two uh, games that people were really looking forward to, Alabama versus LSU and Texas A&M versus Tennessee, both of those games were postponed due to COVID outbreaks. Wah, wah. I guess I love <laughs> I love a good football game, but honestly, I'm surprised more of the games haven't been delayed, not just this week, but overall. Like, generally, there's been a lot of football that's been able to be played, and we can just, you know, it stinks when they're delayed, but it's a good thing for the protection of the players and those around them. Yeah, it is kind of remarkable how uh, how many different kinds of sports have been able to proceed uh, during this time. And I know college football is just it's just one of those things that's kind of like it, it makes things feel normal, even though it's totally not normal to see coaches wearing masks or uh, stadiums that are largely empty. Uh, but just the normalcy and the joy that comes from that is something that I think is uh is really good. And they have, even though these games are postponed, uh, my understanding is that they intend to still play both of them. So something to look forward to in the future. Josh, do you even know what football is? What is a football? (laughs) No, what's funny is that like with our, with our kids, uh, they, they get the names of like whatever sport they're trying to play confused all the time. And so usually it takes three or four guesses to figure out what sport is on television or even what kind of ball they are holding in their hands or throwing back and forth. So anyway, they get it from their dad. I'm sure there you go. Nerd life. Uh, in Baptist life, uh, there are two things that to point out. So our state conventions uh, all across uh, the country are happening right now as Southern Baptists are meeting many in modified formats uh, in order to 
just because of the pandemic. But two things that are worth noting is that the the state execs from both the, these are the the leaders of the state conventions in the state of North Carolina and uh, in the state of Texas uh, have announced their retirements. So the uh, state executive and our director treasurer of the Baptist State Convention in North Carolina, Milton Holyfield, is retiring. He's been with the Baptist State Convention in North Carolina for 27 years, and he has been serving as president for, or as executive director for 14 years, and he's the 14th state exec in the North Carolina Baptist Convention. So uh, he has been a dear friend to the URLC. He's been a faithful servant among Southern Baptists and has really challenged, uh, in his final address to the messengers, uh, he challenged and encouraged them to strengthen their prayer life, to integrate the Word of God into their daily lives, to grow in their love of God, and to magnify the gospel and make disciples as they cooperate together to advance God's kingdom. I mean, that is that is a quintessential Southern Baptist message, and, and Milton Holyfield is somebody who has served with excellence and distinction is definitely going to be missed. Moving uh, down to the state of Texas, Jim Richards announced uh, this to their board uh, during a meeting this week. He is the founding executive director of the 22-year-old Southern Baptist of Texas Convention. Listeners who are really familiar with SBC will know there's actually two uh, Baptist conventions in the in the state of Texas. And so he's the founding director of the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention, or the SBTC, and has served there for 22 years. Uh, when he started, it had 120 affiliated churches in 1998, and now there's over 2,700 churches, and the SBTC is a thriving body of Baptist Christians in the state of Texas. Uh, Richards turned 68 in December, and he announced that he is now transitioning, but he, he was emphatic that he does not view this as a retirement, and this is what I wanted to highlight for our listeners. He said, as a preacher of the gospel, I will never retire. I cannot retire from my calling to preach or from work in the kingdom. Retirement from the call comes when you see Jesus face to face. Such a poignant remark and um, a lesson for those of us who are coming up in the faith behind these men who have been so faithful to run the race that the Lord has laid out for them and, of course, still has more left. But I really admire people who retire when they get older in order to make room for new leadership, younger leadership, different advances that maybe they wouldn't be, not that they wouldn't be able to facilitate, but would they just just allow for some fresh leadership? And I think that's just a huge example of men whose identities, as we've talked about before, are not wrapped up in their work, even though ministry is important, but are wrapped up in their Savior and in bringing the gospel to all nations. Now, I think that's a really good point, Lindsay, because these these men, it's not as though they no longer have anything to offer or anything like that. In fact, I think both of them are going to continue faithful service to the kingdom of God and among Southern Baptists, but they are uh, creating room for others to step in and kind of take up that mantle while they find, uh, while, while they use their gifts and talents uh, in other ways for the next, you know, decades of their life. And finally, a few things from pop culture. So uh, the first thing that I saw that was really great is work. Uh, different kinds of companies trying to help their employees cope with the pandemic are trying different strategies, including a 30-hour work week or surprise days off to fight burnout. I don't know about you guys, but that is a, you know, that's a really cool thing to me. I'm sure for people whose companies have been offering them that kind of either flexible work week or these surprise days off, like stuff like that is always welcome, especially anytime you can get your mind off work uh, for a few extra days. The the recharge that comes along with that is always just, it, it makes... It just seems to make life easier. Spa days, anybody? Spa days? Maybe that's a good idea for, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that sounds ridiculous. <laughs> 
Maybe they'll just give you a spy day, Lindsay. Maybe that's what maybe that's what you deserve. <laughs> um, on another note, so last week, sadly, we said goodbye to Sean Connery. This week, we said goodbye to Alex Trebek, the longtime Jeopardy host, uh, announced uh, long ago that he was battling pancreatic cancer, and it was announced uh, this week that he had passed away at the age of 80. So many people our age and older grew up with Jeopardy just as a staple in their household. My When I would visit my aunt and uncle, we would, um, in the evening, they would like take their showers and baths at like six o'clock or something. And of course, I thought these routines were so ridiculous when I was younger, but now I'm older and I love my little routine. Anyway, and then they would make their dinner and then they would sit down and watch Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy. <laughs> And um, and so I spent some time with Alex Trebek via the TV, and obviously I didn't know him, but what I have heard repeatedly about him in seeing some of the news coverage is that he really was the real deal, same gracious guy on camera that he was off camera. And that's always an encouraging thing to hear about a celebrity. Now, that's that's exactly right. And I have been watching Jeopardy basically my whole life and it is I don't think it's ever going to be the same. I don't I don't know how you move on from somebody who was so iconic and and such a as you mentioned just kind of a staple uh like Alex Trebek, but it is certainly sad uh to see him go and man, I I don't even know. I don't I don't even know. I don't even have good words to describe the way it makes me feel. It's just it's just really sad. What I did hear as well is that um, the last episode with him as host will air December 25th, which I thought was, I'll use the word again, poignant. Apparently, that's my word of the day today because I've used it several times. Sure. Uh, But I just thought that was a sweet thing. So tune in December 25th. Yeah. So lastly, we are celebrating Happy Plus Aversary. And if you don't know what that is, it means Disney Plus has now been around for one year. And as uh, Megan pointed out to us, it's because apparently Disney had the ability to see something that that none of us could see, which is Disney apparently saw this pandemic coming. And Disney Plus rolled out in time for us to, as we've been living lives in quarantine or all kinds of adjustments, uh, to spend a year with Disney Plus, many of us having opportunities to relive some of our favorite things from childhood, or for me to watch through the whole Star Wars series and the entire Marvel universe. Uh, it's been really, really fun. Lindsay, what, what has been your most watched thing on Disney Plus? So definitely Frozen, Frozen 2, because I don't know what it is about Frozen, but kids love it. Um, and also taking me back to my childhood, y'all might be a little too young, but uh, and by y'all, I mean Josh and Megan. But the movie Willow is on there, and I used to love Willow as a kid. And so I've watched that multiple times. Have you ever heard of that, Josh? You know, Willow? you know, normally when you say you might be too young, I always try to like defend myself and go, no way, I've seen that. I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, my word. It's so good. You have to go look it up. It's a, uh, it's like a fantasy movie about this baby that's going to save the world and... There are these big people and little people, and the little people have to help save the rest of the world by delivering the baby to the big people. (laughs) Anyway, it was directed by Ron Howard. It sounds really weird, but it's super nostalgic to me. What about you and your household? 
So uh, honestly, uh, we have watched a ton of Frozen ourselves. In fact, we we love the Disney princesses um, in general. My daughter is obsessed with them, and you know, every day is dress up day. Sometimes we wear go through multiple uh, costumes in a single day, and so definitely a lot of Disney princesses have been watched. But lately, watching The Mandalorian, and so here's oh, what I would tell how people. could I forget? Yes, right, The Mandalorian. How great! Well, now by saying we love princesses, are you including yourself? in that who's your favorite princess josh i mean I, I have not actually spent a ton of time watching it although look there's something precious about having your little girl sitting in your lap while you're watching That's things so whether, true. It's, mm-hmm. whether it's frozen or the little mermaid or moana or we actually watched the live action beauty and the beast the other day like there are you know anything to spend time with my kids and especially to see the joy uh in my daughter's eyes when she watches those so Disney Plus has been a really great thing for us. If you've been missing out, uh, it's not too late. It's still relatively inexpensive, and you can have access to the whole Disney universe, including a movie recommended by Lindsay that no one's ever heard of. So you should... That is not true. Please email (laughs) if you've heard of it. Also, maybe Disney will give us some royalties for uh, giving them a shout-out and calling people to sign up. I would welcome Disney as a as a sponsor of the ERLC podcast. Well, Lindsay, that's going to do it for the culture rundown. And listeners, if you feel disappointed or like you're lacking some Brent Leatherwood in your lives, we don't blame you. Uh, we will do whatever we have to do to ensure that he's back with us next week to, to give you that culture content that you count on every week. But Lindsay, uh, for now, that's your look at This Week in Culture. This episode of the ERLC podcast was sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of The Christmas We Didn't Expect by David Mathis. 25 daily reflections for Advent will help you to adore Jesus, the one who came to save us and make our futures certain. Find out more about this book at thegoodbook.com. Well, we're really grateful for Patrick taking the time to join us today and excited to have him uh, back in the Southern Baptist fold at Midwestern and for all the students that he gets to interact with and shape and teach about the Gospel of Matthew, about the Kingdom of God, and as he leads them through their studies in New Testament. uh, We are just really grateful for him and excited to see what God is going to do uh, through him in the years to come. So Patrick, as we're getting started today, would you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you're serving in ministry right now? And while you're at it, would you tell us one thing that God is teaching you in this season of life and ministry? Sure. It's so good to be here with you guys, Josh and Lindsay. Um, So we just got here to Kansas City, Missouri in August. We moved from Portland, Oregon. I was serving at Western Seminary in Portland as a New Testament teacher for six years there. And then I just transferred over here to Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City. So we're exploring the city and uh, enjoyed some of the hot summer, and now it's turned cold. We actually had snow a few days ago, which surprised me. Being from Portland, we don't get much snow. And we're eating lots of good barbecue, and so we're just really excited to be here at Midwestern. Um, I'm going to be doing a little bit more writing here and just serving the students here, and we've never lived in this part of the country, and so... Yeah, we're, we're trying to settle and excited about the future. Uh, one of the hard things about moving is leaving a bunch of friends that you got to know and church relationships there and colleagues. And so one of the things that the Lord has been teaching us just through this is the Lord gives you comforts in every place that you go. And so we've moved around a little bit. Um, and 
the tendency is to maybe compare sometimes. Uh, this was better there, that was better here, whatever it is, but that the Lord is providing for you in different ways in each place. And so, especially in terms of relationships, we recognize it's a good thing to mourn the loss of friendships that you've had um, because those were good gifts from God. And it's a it's a good thing to lament that those are gone in some ways. I mean, I know they're not completely gone, but you're not seeing them in the same way. But it's also a good thing to accept the new things that the Lord is giving you here. So we've met so many people here in Kansas City, at the school, at the church, just in the city that have been so kind and friendly and hospitable. And maybe the tendency, again, is to compare but the Lord is giving us new gifts here and new relationships here to invest in and new people to talk to and to meet and to recognize that those are also gifts from the Lord. And so we're just, we're trying to press in to those relationships and press into our church and and we're the type that just like to kind of jump in and, and get going right away. We don't want to take a lot of time finding a church or take a lot of time. We put an offer on a house like three days in here because we just we just want to jump in and uh, start serving as much as possible. So transitions are hard, um, but the Lord also teaches you a lot through them. That's a good reminder for this season too, season of quarantine and COVID and a lot of loss for people, um, but also a reminder that the Lord is doing a new thing uh, in a lot of our lives and in our hearts and we should open our eyes to see what and ask the Lord to see what it is that he might be doing. So, Patrick, that's just a good reminder that lesson in the midst of a season of coronavirus and uh, the season that is 2020 with so much loss, so much change for people. People are mourning a lot. There are also new things that the Lord is doing, and we can have hope in that. So thank you for the reminder to open our eyes and to ask the Lord to open our eyes to see what it is that he's doing and the gifts that he's giving us in the midst of this transition of a season. So you mentioned your transition teaching and moving from uh, the Pacific Northwest to Kansas City. So what made you decide to make the move back to teaching at an SBC seminary? Yeah, so I was trained in an SBC seminary, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I loved my time there. It was so wonderful and met so many great people and really grew to love the SBC in so many ways. Um, and then we moved out, as I said, to Portland and worked at a school that wasn't officially connected to any denomination anymore. So we we got a wide variety of students, which was also just really helpful to be exposed to different denominations and students that are coming from different backgrounds and things like that. But um, here at MBTS, uh, their tagline mission is for the church. And I've been really influenced by just kind of a central vision for the church, that the seminary, the ac- the academy itself exists for the church. And there's Lord's just doing like a lot of really good things at this school. And so as I was kind of looking at what they were doing and seeing their vision, it just seemed to align so closely what, with what I wanted to do. And so stepping back into the SBC was just, it seemed really natural to me. Uh, at this stage of my life. I have some years uh, under my belt in terms of teaching. And then the SBC is so great in terms of the cooperative program, in terms of helping students come to seminaries and and get training, and in terms of sending out missionaries, um, just both nationally and internationally. So I just love that about the SBC, that they're trying to reach the world, they're trying to reach the nation, and they believe in theological education. It's just amazing what they do to kind of help contribute to theological education because 
I believe that uh, as the leaders go, the churches go in many ways. Obviously, ultimately, it's up to God, but we need biblically qualified and faithful leaders in our churches, and that we don't make them qualified as a seminary. We help them along in that task, but um, it's just a joy to serve here and and to see so many students come through and and I really, I know it's COVID season, but I love that MBTS here is is still, they're doing online learning uh, and, and we believe in that, but they're also pressing into on-campus learning as well. And we're wanting students to come to the campus uh, when it's non-COVID time. Um, and I, I love being with students and just being in the classroom with them. And so, so many schools are kind of moving towards the purely online and they're saying we're going to do both, and I just really appreciate that. So it seemed really natural for me to step back in, and we've really enjoyed it so far. Patrick, we are definitely glad to have you like fully back into the Southern Baptist fold and excited uh, for you to be teaching students at Midwestern. Um, I'm actually kind of grateful. Normally, this question would fall to Brent, but he's not here today. And I get to ask you, like your research areas have covered things that I think are some of the most important things in the Bible and things for Christians to understand. You, you focused a lot on the Gospel of Matthew and especially on the Kingdom of God. Can you tell us why you have focused so much of your research on these themes? Yeah. So, I mean, I got into studying the Gospels because I, you know, and this wasn't intentional, but sometimes you view the Gospels and you're like, well, there's three of the books that are about the same, and then you have John that's different. Um, But especially for Protestants, sometimes the meat and potatoes is Paul. Paul's where we get our theology. Paul's where we get the doctrine of justification. And Jesus is kind and nice, but we're not really as sure what to do with that because it's not like propositional teaching. It's more narrative style. But uh, there's been a big recovery, and I just kind of fell in love with narrative theology. And so I really believe that the whole of Scripture is one story, and that story in many ways comes to climax in the person of Jesus. And so this is not to denigrate Paul in any way, but to see that the whole story of the Old Testament is being completed in Jesus himself, and that each of the Gospels is giving us a different view, uh, similar but different view of Jesus. So in Matthew, he's a teacher. Uh, in Mark, he's this powerful wonder worker. In Luke, he's caring for the poor. In John, he's the Logos, the Word of God. And so you get this kind of amazing picture of Jesus in the Gospels. And so I just fell in love with the Gospels. And really, the theology of Paul stems from Jesus's life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, what he did here on the earth. So he's, he's pulling from those traditions, and his theology is stemming from that. So they're not just stories. There's actually theology in those stories. And so that's really been my focus uh, in, in terms of the Gospels. And then in terms of the kingdom of God, you know, it's the message of Jesus. The gospel of the kingdom is what he proclaimed. It's how he summarized his message. And I was increasingly convinced that we make Christianity more individualistic and privatistic, and maybe that it leads even to some political quietism. But when Jesus announces the kingdom of God, he's talking about a whole body, a whole life, uh, a human flourishing, uh, whatever you want to put in there, theology that says Christianity affects your relationships. It affects the way you eat. It aff- affects the where you live. It affects everything you do. It affects your bank account. And so the kingdom of God is really that summary statement that says, I am bringing a new place with new people, and I'm going to reign over all, and you need to follow me in my death, in my, in, in my res- resurrection. And so 
I think that just brings a bigness to the message of Jesus, and it applies to every person in every place, and I love that because the message of Jesus transcends all cultures, and it speaks to everyone. And so I I really want to focus on kind of that big community that he's creating and the new creation that he's uh, bringing about. Such a good word, Patrick, and such a good reminder, and just made me, as you, even as you were saying, the who Jesus is shown to be in the Gospels just made me worship Him and want to know more about Him, and uh, kind of want to be back in seminary classes, kind of, but not really, <laughs> if I didn't have to write a paper. <laughs> you know, MBTS Which, has a PhD, so you know you can join if you nice. want. Nice, yes. Oh, boy. You might already have that degree, but you can get another one. No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> there. Listen, we would need a burning bush situation at this point. <laughs> um, but we can make that happen. Yeah, we can make that happen. Um, but we've got that a good marketing act- team. Yes, you do. I'm <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, but for many of our listeners, they're not seminary students, and they either won't be called to seminary or they just don't have the opportunity. But they do read their Bibles, and they do want to grow in their understanding of the Scriptures. So is there anything you would say or encouragement you would offer to them about what to look for and or how to read their Bibles? Yeah, that's a great question. Um So one of the things I like to tell students, you know, there's this famous line that goes around that says, the Bible wasn't written to you, but it's written for you. And I kind of want to just say, no, that's not true, because there's a divine author, and this is the covenant document that he has written to you. So I just want to begin with actually uh, giving the Bible back to the church and back to the people and saying, you know, that statement that the Bible wasn't written for you, but it's written to you. It's meant for you to understand that those, like the letters of Paul, were into different congregations. But the Holy Spirit is also speaking to us through those letters. And so I think a lot of times people are so scared to read the Bible and they're not sure what to do because they're like, oh, I've got to understand so much about the backgrounds and about uh, where Paul was and when he was doing this and what was going on in Corinth and so forth and so on. And all of those things are good and they're really helpful, but we can also recognize that the Holy Spirit and God himself continues to speak to us through these scriptures. And he is speaking to us because there is a one divine voice that comes to us. So I I want to encourage people just to read the Bible to commune with God. Um, I always tell students, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, in the Ark of the Covenant was the the commandments, and that's where God's presence was. And so we like to talk about the presence of God a lot, but God has communicated with us in the scriptures, and that's where we meet with God. That's where he speaks to us. And I'm, I'm telling my kids this all the time because they're like, why doesn't God speak back to me when I pray to him? And there are times where God does miraculous things, and he speaks back to us, but I keep telling them he speaks to you in his word. So that would be one thing I'd want to say. The other thing in terms of reading the scriptures is just to continue to encourage kind of a whole Bible reading, um, that this is one story, and to read large chunks of scripture that uh, the book of Exodus was meant to be read as a whole, Uh, the book of Romans was, and you're trying to get the flow of what they're doing and what they're saying, and that the two Testaments are connected. And so it's one story, and it all leads to Jesus, and we're supposed to see Jesus in all of it, and we're supposed to worship 
worship him and to recognize that as you read the scriptures, they're referring back to these stories that were basically like, I mean, we, you know, we, we quote television shows and so forth and so on. They're quoting what their culture knew at that time, and that's the scriptures themselves. And so knowing that Old Testament story especially helps us so much as we step into the New Testament when Jesus says, or when John says about Jesus again in John 1, that I am the Logos, he's the Word, that should make you think back to Genesis and the Word that created all things. So Jesus is bringing in this new creation. And then in Matthew 1, when Jesus is introduced with this really boring genealogy, you're like, why is he putting a genealogy here? Well, because God had promised that he was going to make a new people through this one figure in Genesis. And so those promises are being fulfilled and accomplished as you begin reading those stories. So sometimes we step into it and it doesn't make sense. It's it's because we aren't understanding the flow of the whole story. And so getting that kind of big picture, I love to encourage students to see that. Gosh, Patrick, that was so good. And we just, you know, on our podcast, we talk a lot about Christians and culture, but we want to always, you know, as much as we can, bring these things back to the Bible. And so having like a, a New Testament scholar really help us understand uh, what to look for, or even why some of these things that we're tempted to look over uh, or pass over like genealogies are important is really, really helpful. We can't let you go, though, without bringing up your dad. Uh, most of our listeners or many listeners might not know, but your dad is a like legendary New Testament scholar. Lindsay and I both had him as a professor when we were at Southern Seminary. And we just wanted to ask you a couple of quick questions because we just, he's a man that we admire uh, and have learned so much from. So, you know, you having grown up with him, here's, here's a couple of questions. Like, is it weird for you to have you know, be in the same field of academic scholarship with your dad? Uh, what is something that you would say is maybe the biggest thing or, or really important lesson that you've learned from him? And then finally, just for fun, who is it? Because he has kind of a unique, kind of a unique style. Who, who is it that does the best Tom Schreiner impression? <laughs> That's a great last question. Maybe I should begin with that one because that one is really what everyone is here for. Um <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I don't, the problem is though, I don't have a good answer. It was, I think it was some student that I can't remember their name that came through. You know, usually it's not like the other seminary professors because they're not comedians, but you get a few students that come through that are like actually really, really funny. Not saying those other profs aren't funny, but they're like good at impersonation. So I feel like there's been a few students and I can't remember their names who have come through back in the day and they were bold enough, like with my dad to actually do an impersonation in front of him because they got to be good friends. So uh, I can't give you a name. Maybe that's divulging too many secrets too. But um, there's been a few students who have come through who are good at impersonations and they do great impersonations of my dad. And it is pretty easy in some ways if you've taken him for a class. So I, I can um, totally believe that. And, and then in terms of, is it weird being in the same field of scholarship? I, yes and no. I, I, it's, I'm always, I'm not very self-reflective about this in some ways. It it's nice. It's actually really nice because whenever I have questions, I can just call him and be like, "Hey, what's going on with this debate? Tell me, tell me what's happening." So that's that's amazing. Um, it's a little weird when we get confused or when someone assumes like I do the exact same thing as him in terms of the scholarship. So um, that that's kind of weird in some ways because they're like, "Oh, you wrote this book," and I'm like, "No, no, no, no." So I've had people. Um, like at church who aren't involved at all with the seminary or anything. And they would quote my dad from Romans. And um, 
he'd be like, oh, you were quoted today. And I was like, yeah, if it was in Romans, it's probably not me. Maybe in Matthew, it might have been me, but it was probably my dad. But it, that's kind of funny things that happen uh, with being in the same field. But honestly, it's just a blessing. It's it's fun to do that. And uh, yeah, we didn't even realize this, but we are actually contributing to the same commentary series. So I don't, maybe it's happened before, but you have a father and son in a commentary series, which is kind of fun to do. So he's doing, uh, he did first Second Peter and Jude, and I'm doing Acts in the same commentary series. So that's kind of fun. Um, and then the other question was, what's what's the biggest thing you've learned from him? Uh, the biggest thing I've learned from him, I would say, is just from his example of he practices what he preaches. And so, um, unfortunately, too often you find people who know a lot, but they don't live it. And he truly lives it. And so if he says something, I was able to watch his life and watch his conduct, as the scriptures say. And um, he really loves people. He really loves the word of God. He really cares for them. And so the scriptures are supposed to have a transforming effect upon our lives. And it's had a transforming effect upon his. And that has had a transforming effect upon me. And so I, I'm a firm believer that you don't actually truly understand the scriptures until you're transformed by them, because to understand is to be changed by them. There's no such thing as understanding without being changed by them. And so just watching his changed life through the scriptures, I always encourage my students that really the end goal here is to become more like God, to be transformed by him as we behold his face. So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we tell you about the things we've been talking about with one another. I think next week we're going to make Brent come with like a full list of lunchrooms. But for now, Lindsay, tell us what's on your mind. So I saw this clip on um, the Today Show, actually, this little girl who her mom's talking to her and asks her what God's name is. And the little girl looks at her mom and is like, duh, Howard. And she's like, what's his name? Howard. And she's saying Howard. She says, God's name is Howard. And she's like, Howard? Why Why is his name Howard? What are you talking about? She says, our father who art in heaven, Howard be thy name. So she, she thinks from the Lord's Prayer that instead of hallowed be thy name, that Howard is God's name. And I just thought that was the most hilarious thing. It was so cute. So... Now, I mean, we're not going to call God Howard in our household, but we do say Howard every once in a while. (laughs) That is so funny. It reminds me of uh, there's this story I've heard floating around of a little kid uh, who says to their, you know, their dad after church one day, Daddy, what's a weak butt? He says, what are you talking about? Daddy, what's a weak butt? Have you heard this before? No. Oh, it comes from uh, this song, Jesus Loves Me. And he says, you know, Jesus loves me this side. But anyway, we get to the part, they are weak, but he is strong. It's like, what's a weak butt? <laughs> Kids are the best. So, okay. So so for my lunchroom this week, it's really simple. And it comes from this clip that I saw floating around uh, online. And it is what I have to describe as maybe the most epic hole-in-one of all time. So there's a link to it in the show notes. But basically, instead of, you know, hitting the ball in the air, uh, the golfer just hits the ball 
incredibly hard, skips it across the water. It goes straight across the water, bounces up onto the green, and then takes this really long route, but ends up being, I mean, like I said, it ends up being a hole in one. And it is just one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen. I probably watched it, I don't know, five times in a row when I first saw it. So if you have yet to see this, uh, it's the link's there in our show notes. Click on it. You can watch uh, what I would describe as the most epic hole in one I've ever seen. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. That guy had to have been just utterly amazed. Oh, for sure. Because the thing about hole-in-ones is that, like, that's, there's there's no way, there's no way that he knew that that ball was going to go into the hole. He was just trying to get it onto the green. But the fact that he, he I mean, it was just a perfect shot. It was stunning. So, again, if you haven't seen it, definitely take the time to watch it. Well, that's going to do it for the show this week. Thanks so much for listening. And just as a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going to your podcast app and leaving us a rating or review. But for Lindsay and myself and Brent somewhere out there, we want to say thanks so much for listening. And we will be back next week with Brent and more content.